Hello, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Milan Dragicevic. Hello, Milan. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Just a little bit about Milan. He has performed with nationally recognized regional theaters, including the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, one of our faves, Hartford Stage, Pasadena Playhouse, Pacific Conservatory for Performing Arts, and a 10-year stint with one of our major faves, Will Gear's Theatricum Botanicum, where he earned a Los Angeles Dramalogue Critics Award for his portrayal of Richard III. He is the author of a new book entitled The Persuasive Actor, Rhetorical Power on the Contemporary Stage, which explores the lost art of rhetoric and how its magical craft can empower today's performance in speaking verbally adventurous text from Shakespeare to hip-hop theater. Welcome, Milan. I am really excited to get into this whole rhetorical thing, but before we do, Garrett, you have to talk about Theatrical Botanicum. I do, Milan. <laughs> we've, we've never worked together, and, but I think of you as an old friend because I've seen you so often at the Theatricum. Once upon a time when I was in graduate school, you came to do a workshop on rhetoric for us, and it stuck with me all these years. So I was delighted to see that your book came out and to have this opportunity to talk with you. Wow, it's great. I had no idea how we made this connection. Uh, you never know in life how these different roads come together. So Milan, you have, you have this book that's come out, The Persuasive Actor, Rhetorical Power on the Contemporary Stage. It's a fantastic title. And in your book, you say, rhetoric is the art of persuasion by words, which I think is very interesting. But when we speak of the study of rhetoric, some would dismiss it as nothing more than memorizing unpronounceable ancient Greek terms to describe complicated figures of speech. I have a feeling that you would disagree with that. Ah, oh, very much so. <laughs> it's not really about the Greek terms. It's important. It, it may be important to some people to realize the origin of where these names came from. Uh, and I think there's some uh, benefit to knowing that, but it's really what the terms describe that's much more important. It's, it's, it's ways of speaking human communication that are really quite magical, uh, that are very, they, that they hook the ear like a piece of music. And that kind of art form, that kind of way of looking at human speaking has been lost kind of in the sands of time to a large degree. And so this, this wisdom, this ancient wisdom has tremendous uh, application today in our kind of bustling new world. Uh, and we can unearth it is what I'm trying to do, rediscover it and put it into our sizzling contemporary world and make it really swing. I love that. I love the, I love the sizzling contemporary world. But let me ask you this, as an actor, how would you use the power of, and discipline of the classics, as you say, and rhetoric in a play that doesn't have much rhetoric? Yes, uh, well, we, that's a great question. Um, we don't wanna use a hammer for something that requires a screwdriver, and we don't wanna use a screwdriver for something that requires a hammer. So in certain plays, and I talk about this in the book, that are really subtext-based, where the dialogue is really not what's, the actual words are not really what's important, but the swirling hidden feelings be beneath the words, literally subtext. That kind of play doesn't lend itself particularly well to rhetorical craft because the language itself is not what's being pointed to. It's the feelings, the psychological undertow that the actors are playing. That has kind of ruled contemporary American actor training for 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, sub and it's great. I have nothing against subtext. I, you know, it's a wonderful tool, especially for those kind of plays that you're, you're describing. But that is only half of the picture. The other half of the picture really is not subtext. It's surface text, 
literally what you see right on the words themselves. And when we talk about that, we are suddenly opening the door to the rhetorical universe, a door that has been shut for at least 200 years in the uh, United States. And that door, once you creak it open, opens you to this massive universe that we have not studied in high school, middle school, that we just have not been really exposed to here in a contemporary United States as a, not even talking about actor training. I'm talking about reading and speaking and communicating. That world is really fascinating. And the more you open that door and the more you start entering that world, the more secrets you discover. And uh, they have tremendous things to offer today for the theater where the language itself is creating the power. The words are creating the emotion. The words are, are driving the motives. The words are driving behavior. Whether it's a Shakespeare play, whether it's a Tom Stoppard play, all of these plays, while different in verbal style, are, are leaning heavily on what I call the verbal surface. Whether it's a Zell Miller hip hop play, like The Evidence of Silence Broken, which is tremendously uh, rhythmic word play. It doesn't look like Shakespeare in any way, but shares kinship because it's, it's maximizing the power of, of language and, and ask the actor to play the surface as well as the subtext. Well, I, I have two thoughts about that, and I, and I couldn't agree more, actually. I think you have two definite friendly ears here. There are language-based plays in contemporary theater, and then there are what you say, subtextual plays. You know, something like Annie Baker is very subtextual. You know, that's just going to be what is beneath the surface. But then I, I talk about Donald Margulies. Who, or August Wilson, who both use language in very specific right. ways and understanding right. what they're doing there will help an actor in terms of both communicating that, but also getting to the root of what they're talking about. I think that's a really good point. You bring up August Wilson, you know, and here there's some beautiful, I mean, language in August Wilson, this kind of haunted imagery that sometimes he uses. And, you know, when I was starting out as an actor many years ago uh, with the LA Actors Theater, this kind of renegade group, on the corner of Santa Monica and Western, where I was really privileged to work with some really great, much more experienced actors like Richard Jordan and Dana Elkar, who told me once that I was a 20-year-old actor. They pulled me aside. I, I was very fortunate to get a very good role in a, one of their original plays. And they were always doing original plays back then. And I remember Richard Jordan pulled me aside in rehearsal once and said, you know, just remember that you're there to serve something bigger than yourself. And you're there to serve this story, whether it's in a monologue, whether it's in a scene, bring that story to an audience. And, you know, at the time I was 20, I was a little bit, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. You know, I was too busy acting. I was too busy trying to show that I belonged. And for me, serving something bigger than my own sense of talent or ego was not yet, I was too immature to know what that meant. But as the years <laughs> rolled by, his line about serving a story is really has kind of haunted me. And the work I do really ultimately, I think, with rhetoric is not because I think words are just kind of window dressing is because I think words can help us get to serving the story. Often you'll see a speech. I mean, I've been watched hundreds of plays, as I'm sure you guys have, and I've been in many plays. And sometimes I'll be distracted by the actor's talent where it's overwhelming the story. And I don't, I can marvel at somebody's emotional range. But then if you ask me, what was that monologue about that was just uncorked for three minutes in front of 500 people? I may not be able to tell you because I didn't really get the story. Uh, the words were being downplayed in favor of the actor's emotional range. Now, I'm not trying to substitute one for the other. I'm not saying, trying to say we should just be speaking machines devoid of any kind of understanding of the emotional 
undertow or whatever we want to call it. But how many times have I seen plays, whether it's contemporary or classical, where I'm losing the story? Something is not crossing the footlights. And that something has often to do with words penetrating past the footlights into the hearts and minds of an audience. And so my work really starts, it's not technique for technique's sake. It really starts, and I think the classical understanding of story is a little different than ours. I think they understood that the words, if you really understand the words and you taste them in your mouth and you hear them leave your mouth and you get connected to how the word is creating the image that you're speaking simultaneously, that has huge implication for story and for what an audience receives. I actually love that you just said that if you can taste the words in your mouth because I, I talk about that all the time. And yeah. being able to just use the sounds and I think you started by talking about how like in this day and age we've lost we've lost our connection to to all of that. And part of it is that we don't use the sounds of English. We flatten everything. Right. Everything is at the, in like a very thin band. Absolutely. Um, and I'm encouraging my students to feel the words in their mouth because then they can do anything. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way. You just talked about flattening. That, I so much agree with that. Uh, rhetorical figures are the antithesis to flattening. They actually, actually cause you to go to the borderlands of your speaking and your pitch range. They ca you cannot ignite a rhetorical figure in the middle, in the gray, dull middle. The only way they can spark and ignite is if you take it to the borders of your personality and your vocal range. That's when they come alive. And that's why this training, rhetorical training, and that's why I wrote the book, is that um, we, we are not doing ourselves any favors by limiting or speaking within a very naturalist court. That kind of corridor may serve you well for some of the plays that you mentioned early on. It, um, it doesn't serve us well when we get to what you call a language play. And those plays are asking us to really swing out with our speaking, to see what's possible. And I think many actors are afraid that they won't be believed, that it won't be believable, that somehow it's kind of challenging that naturalistic box that we've been in. And so there are many truths, I say, when I work with students, and there are many believable, there's many believable paths. So I think that the reason that I'm fascinated by the history and the study of rhetoric is because it opened up the self. It literally opened up the capital S self and its expression and how one expresses. That was one of the great secrets of classical antiquity is that students were asked to speak every day out loud. Everybody today reads in their head silently, actors as well as non-actors, by asking students to speak out loud every day, to recite things in front of their classmates, you discovered something about yourself, who you are, what you stand for. Hearing sound leave your body, just that physical experience. Hearing sound expressed through words leave your body was a great tool of enlightenment. We have lost that because we don't ask people to speak out loud today. Uh, everybody reads in their head silently where words can never take shape or sound. And so we've lost a very valuable tool. The reason rhetoric is important is not just because we can uncork language in a persuasive way. The reason it's important and why it's, it's, a, it's been very unfortunate to have lost it as an art form is that it was, a, it was a main tool for students to understand their self. So Milan, you have chosen uh, one of Shakespeare's most notorious villains, Richard III. Although at this point, is he Richard, Duke of Gloucester? He's not the king yet. Yeah, he's Duke of Gloucester still. He's not the king yet. He's been hoping to be king through all of the three parts of Henry VI. <laughs> yes. 
you know, the Richard III and the trilogy before it, the Henry VI trilogy, it's kind of like the Star Wars where you have to, where, depending on where you dive in, <laughs> you have to kind of piece together <laughs> the other sections. So by the time we see Richard in Richard III, he's, he has a history already in the previous plays. And what I love about Richard III is especially, certainly the opening. He just comes on and tells you in a couple of lines what you've missed in the previous <laughs> three plays. He kind of quickly summarizes it for you. <laughs> and says, here we go, this is where we're at. We used to have these bloody wars, now we have this glorious peace. Uh, my brother is hanging out with his groupies in the court. I am not part of that. I don't feel I can be part of that. So I think I'm just gonna have to kill a lot of people. So, um, <laughs> you know, he's, what I, I think first and foremost, he is a theatrical character. He is a chameleon. He uses words, he uses different masks for different people. And I think that's why the play is effective, is, is because of his theatricality and his ability to change shapes and forms, so to speak. So that, that's what I, you know, attracted me. I played this part many years ago, I think as you guys alluded to. So it's been fun thinking about what I might want to do from it. So I was thinking about that speech after the infamous Lady Anne scene, where an impossible scene, really. How do you woo, how do you seduce a woman whose husband you have killed and father-in-law you have killed? What, what kind of weird task is that for an actor so here we go this is richard the third act two scene one and this is milan Turgisevich reading the scene was ever woman in this humor wooed was ever woman in this humor won i'll have her but i will not keep her long I that killed her husband and his father to take her in her heart's extremest hate with curses in her mouth, tears in her eyes, the bleeding witness of my hatred by having God her conscience and these bars against me and I no friends to back my suit at all but the plain devil in dissembling looks and yet to win her all the world to nothing. Ha! Hath she forgot already that brave prince, Edward, her lord, whom I some three months since stabbed in my angry mood at Tewkesbury? A sweeter and a lovelier gentleman, framed in the prodigality of nature, young, valiant, wise, and no doubt right royal, the spacious world cannot again afford. And will she yet abase her eyes on me? that cropped the golden prime of this sweet prince and made her widow to a woeful bed on me, whose all not equals Edward's moiety, on me, <laughs> that halts and am misshapen thus, my dukedom to a beggarly denier. I do mistake my person all this while. Upon my life, she finds, although I cannot, myself to be a marvelous proper man. I'll be at charges for a looking glass and entertain a score or two of tailors to study fashions to adorn my body. Since I am crept in favor with myself, I will maintain it with some little cost. But first, I'll turn yon fellow in his grave and then return lamenting to my love. Shine out, fair son, till I have bought a glass that I may see my shadow 
as I pass. So Milan, if, as you say, rhetoric is the art of persuasion, yes. is Richard attempting to persuade by this speech? And to what end is he attempting to persuade them? You know, he, I think the audience and himself simultaneously. I think the audience, he views the audience, I think, quite often, and actually from the very beginning, from the very first words uttered in the play as kind of co-conspirators, as people who give him strength by observing his actions. He kind of confides in them, almost seeks to ask their permission in a weird way. So I think he is discovering that he has this power that he didn't realize quite much that he had, and he needs them to kind of confirm it with him. He, they've witnessed it. They've just seen it. He needs to s make sure that they are on the same page and has fun with them. It's like uh, an entertainer in a nightclub, some disco bar. He <laughs> likes to bounce off his humor, his dark humor with them. I think also the entertainment should not be undervalued. I don't know if you know, Richard III comes from the medieval characters, the morality plays that Shakespeare saw as a boy in, coming through in Stratford. Medieval, what the most famous character from the medieval morality plays was Vice, V-I-C-E. And Vice was a prototype of Richard III. And when he came on stage, the audience loved to hiss and boo. And he just would swirl around the stage, drinking in those boos. So Richard is the same. He comes from that vice prototype. And first, first duty of vice was to be entertaining. And I know that sounds a little bit frivolous, but that kind of character entertainment value, one reveling in their badness, is something that I think Shakespeare learned about the theater, watching as an eight or nine-year-old boy, these companies that would occasionally come through Stratford and play these morality tales. Uh, no matter the morality, the theatricality was first and foremost. Also, Richard III is a master of rhetoric. Absolutely. And he's just delightful. And for a rhetorician like yourself, that first couplet must just be like raw meat to you. <laughs> you mean of the play? Uh, now is the winter of our... No, you mean in this, it was ever woman in this oh, yes. mood. Yes, absolutely. I mean, both, really, but in the terms of the speech we're talking about. Absolutely. I think what we underestimate, you know, we're, you know we've, we've had fourth wall theater for a long time uh, in contemporary America. What we underestimate, I think, is the, uh, literally the performance value of speaking to an audience and how that house a character, whether it's Vice or Richard, kind of bounces ideas off an audience to get a better sense of what they just accomplished. You know, by sharing it publicly, I think this is what's important. This ties to rhetoric, actually. By sharing something publicly with an audience, you yourself better understand it uh, because you've just kind of confided out loud to them. It's not just silently sitting in your head. By sharing it publicly, and rhetoric is all about, it's a public art form. There's a lot of actors good in their dorm room. But unless you, unless you make that happen publicly, you, you have lost something. And the public nature of sharing something, hearing yourself say it, cannot be underestimated. And I think that has to do with entertainment and, and performance and sitting in an audience. What are some of the hidden gems in this speech that your study of rhetoric reveals to you? The, throughout the entire speech, what, what the whole speech is kind of enveloped in is a antithesis between what he would view as his crooked self and nature and disfigured, misshapen self. And Edward, her lord, who he has killed, and, his, and her father-in-law, there is kind of framed in that is, can you believe I versus them? 
and that she has picked me. They have so much. They're young, they're valiant, they're wise, and I am misshapen. That kind of antithesis, what, what we would call playing one word off another, it runs rampant in the speech where he's trying to separate light from shadow. I call this separating light from shadow in speaking, like an artist would separate that on a canvas in painting. And also, I think what charges the speech rhythmically is a, a figure that the Romans called accumulatio. And uh, we know this word, accumulate. And accumulatio means a driving, steamrolling rhythm that is hungry, that keeps clawing forth, keeps grabbing phrases one on top of the other without too much stopping to smell the roses along the side of the road. It keeps going and going and going until it reaches the summit. That kind of thing is something that actors used to practice, is not, not letting introspective pauses blunt the rhythmic drive of a speech. You know, one of the hallmarks kind of, and I'm not trying to knock it, I'm not trying to be cynical, one of the hallmarks of contemporary, some contemporary plays or monologues is that the actor feels that they have to search for words to make it more real, to make it more naturalistic, that you're looking for the right word, okay? Whereas opposed to the language already being inside your body and you unfurl it. There's a huge difference between those two strategies. One may be good for a certain kind of play, but when you have a play that's hungry verbally, that's muscular verbally, you need to often accumulate that dialogue. It doesn't mean you speed. It doesn't mean you're going at breakneck speed, but it does mean that you are conscious of a tempo that's driving forth. Just like in music, you would not stop in the middle of a Mozart run to wander about some psychological undertow. You would actually keep the, Mo the Mozart music going. You know, right. we wouldn't go dun dun ba ba bum bum. You know, the phrase bum bum ba ba bum 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 bum. We wouldn't go bum bum ba ba bum 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 bum. You know, we would play it. We would play it through, and the power of that comes from it already being inside your body. I think the trickiest part for a young actor doing that is just going too fast. Yes, and you know, and I'm not sure what it sounded like when I did it, but um. I was trying to give each, each line, you know, it does have a driving rhythm, but I was also trying to give, I was trying to let each uh, line land for its meaning. And that, that, that just takes time, putting those two things together. You know, that's something I still work on. I'm very interested, and in I, I don't want to go into this because it's a whole subject about the connection between Shakespeare and hip hop. Um, yeah. But in terms of the speech, since we are on this speech, one of the things that I find that, first of all, you did, which is, you didn't just build a speech in one continuous rise. You built, and then you built, and then you built again. So like, for instance, that middle, middle ha, you built to that. And then yes. you sort of started going again. One of the things I think is super interesting about this speech is that he kind of gets a little vain. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, he's actually quite, um, he gets quite a little bit snarky with himself. You know, I didn't know I was this uh, attractive. I think I'm going to go hire some tailors. Yeah. I mean, you know? <laughs> You know, I think I'm going to hire some tailors. I'm going to put on some pretty bitchin' clothes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to hit the street. I'm going to hit the town a little bit. I know, boy, it's great to have discovered this. And I think it's a really, I mean, it's a very clever, wicked sense of humor he has. You know, that makes him kind of redeemable in some weird way. If he did not have that humor, I think this is important. If he did not have that really sizzling wit about him, he would be, you know, we would not be able to take him for too long on stage. We would, he would enter the role of, you know, of some kind of serial killer, you know, so, but his wit, 
his theatrical sense of himself keeps us interested in him. And that's that idea of rhetoric and irony are somewhat intertwined on some level. And I think that without that, without any sort of humor, we do, we can get very dry. Yeah, I think that's the key, you know, is that humor, that that's his sense of, uh, his delicious sense of phrasing and language keeps us interested in his story, no matter how dark it becomes. <laughs> and um, his sense of just kind of patting himself on the back, I think is something that Shakespeare learned about theater, even as a young boy, that you can't have it too, quote unquote, serious. Something has to provide escape valves for an audience. And those escape valves, he became a genius in creating, I think. So Milan, before we go, I have to say that when I first saw you speak close to 25 years ago now, mm -hmm. you used a metaphor that has stuck with me this whole time, and I just love it. And you were talking about the power of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And you said, imagine this. There's a big difference between someone who walks up to someone else in a bar and says, excuse me, do you have a match? And someone who walks up to someone in a bar and says, excuse me, please have a relic of Promethean sin. <laughs> wow. I do. <laughs> yes, I remember. You're bringing back some memories. Yes, I think so. Because uh, I would say the first one really, <laughs> the first one really wants a light for their cigarette. And the second one doesn't care if they get the light or not. It's really an advertisement for their own wit and sense of self. And asking the person to to kind of dance with them a little bit in life to see if, if their view of life is equally whimsical, you know, to the degree that that person gets a good response back from someone who gets what they're doing. Uh, on the second example, <laughs> I think they will, they will have been successful because you don't want, you, you know, either, either, the, either the guy comes up to the girl at the bar and she says, for the second example, and she says, what the hell? He has to then move on. He would have to then move on to someone who would actually pick up on that humor and respond in kind. Absolutely. And I could almost see Richard III using that line. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's the reason I think I'm interested. I mean, gosh, I didn't know how uh, that memory stayed with you, Jim, but... Uh, it was Garrett who... Oh, Garrett. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Garrett. But I think that is the huge difference. One is actually part of the subtext-based world, the first example. And the second example is the rhetorical universe the surface-based world. Uh, and surface takes a bad rap in our contemporary life today. Surface was a huge field of study. We tend to connote it with something superficial, something shallow, but the surface of things is its own world. And the second one belongs in that category, the Promethean sin, because then you're asking the person to do a whole bunch of things in a second to imagine myths and gods and stealing fire and bringing it down. And you're asking them to juxtapose that against the mundane act of lighting a cigarette. And those two things create wild humor. Milan, it's been delightful talking to you. Thank you so much for spending your time sharing your wisdom about rhetoric with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this on your podcast. It's been great. Thank you. Oh, Milan, thank you. And oh, for a muse of Promethean sin. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for joining us. I'm Jim Elliott. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.